This is the Reverend Dr. Bradley D. Meyer from Sucker Punch, and you are listening to the Sound Architect Podcast featuring Sam Hughes. Hello, and welcome to the Sound Architect Podcast. I am your host, Sam Hughes, and today I am joined by Sucker Punch Audio Director, Brad Mayer. Thanks for joining me today, Brad. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Sam. It's an absolute pleasure. Now, I'm very excited to talk to you about Ghosts of Tsushima. But before that, I'd love to know about your journey into game audio. Yeah, so my my journey into game audio is definitely a, an unconventional one. Um, but I was always really into sound and music as a kid. Um, experimented a lot with, with tapes and just editing and manipulating uh, cassette tapes when I was a kid. And got a, a four-track cassette recorder and played around with some synthesizers and stuff. And so was always doing a lot of experimentation uh, with audio. Um, and after I graduated college, I ended up uh, as a, a temp in the shipping department of a video game company. And um, I met their sound designer once and I was like, wow, you have such a crazy cool job. What do you do? That's so weird that people make sound for video games for a living. And it turns out that I caught that guy on a good day because he usually wasn't in the office. Uh, he just didn't come in very often. And so there, the VP of product development called me into his office one day and he says, so we hear you're into sound. Well, we just fired the sound designer. So what kind of experience do you have? Um, and I lied through my teeth and told them I had some experience doing stuff, but I'd never actually used a computer program related to sound at that point. I just had my samplers and, and four track and stuff like that. Quite a bold move then. It was, yeah, bold, bold and stupid at the same time, um, which has kind of been my mantra. <laughs> um, but, but no, so I, I went home that night and banged out some stuff on my sampler and uh, grabbed some other stuff that I'd done before and put it onto a cassette. I still have that cassette and it sounds horrible, uh, not just because it's a cassette, but like the actual contents. I, I'm shocked that... Uh, my career could have gone very differently, but I brought that, cas <laughs> I brought that cassette in and the, uh, the guy said, well, it's nothing you're ever going to hear in any of our games, but it shows you know what you're doing, so you got the job. And fortunately for me, they, uh, because their sound designer hadn't been coming in, they basically farmed out all their sound work for the next six months. And so I basically just locked myself in my office there and taught myself MIDI and taught myself the DAWs we had, which were Studio Vision Pro and Pro Tools and learned, you know, just kind of as I was there, like, oh, okay, they need a sound effect for a jack-in-the-box. How do I do that? Maybe I should go buy a jack-in-the-box and record it. Or here's this giant sound library. I guess I can just pull stuff from that and start manipulating it. So it was very much a kind of ad hoc on the job trial by fire kind of thing. Yeah, and very different to now when you have a billion YouTube videos that are like, here's exactly how you do this. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, there's there are people coming out of, of, you know, school with a master's degree in sound design who are infinitely more talented than I ever was. So, yeah, it's it's definitely a much, much different time. Yeah, definitely. And what's the audio department like at Sucker Punch? What kind of team size do you have? We're actually a, a very small team for the size of, of you know, what goes to Tsushima was you know it's obviously a, a vast huge game um and much larger than than what the the sound team at sucker punch could be making so you know currently uh we've got um basically a, a sound designer sound implementer and two technical sound designers 
um, and that's it. And so uh, during Ghost, we had uh, one sound designer, two implementers, and a technical sound designer. Um, and so we really relied a lot on on our partners at, at Sony um, to help out with with sound design. So um, you know, my team at Sony was seven people, kind of at the the height of of uh, Ghost on sound design. Plus, we also have their music team, which is I mean, we've worked with their music team since uh, you know at least infamous one days, and so we have a really great relationship with them as well as the dialogue team. And then all of our cinematics, we actually uh, farm those out to Molinaire uh, in the UK. And, and of course, they all did a fantastic job. So, so yeah, I mean, really, the sound team at, at Sucker Punch is too small to do the size of games that we're doing. But fortunately, we have all these great partners, which makes it possible. Awesome. And do you have your own studios as well? Yeah, we do. I mean, so at Sucker Punch, we have uh, three audio studios uh, and a Foley room. Uh, and Foley Room is it's pretty nice. So we, Very cool. yeah, we we moved. Geez, I mean, you know, this last year is kind of a wash. But I think we moved about four years ago, maybe. And so that was fun to actually get to do a new build out because our our previous studio was a little less than uh, desirable. We actually I had a small Foley Room in my office there uh, that was right next to a bathroom, and so uh, you know. Every recording I ever made, there was me cursing a lot every time somebody flushed the toilet. Um, so, so this is it's not the worst place for an audio guy. As well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was like, could you look at the blueprints? But um, no. So this is is much better, and uh, we're definitely we've had a lot of fun in there. And I, I, I yearn to get back into that room and, and start recording more stuff. Yeah, I bet. So let's get to Ghost of Tsushima. I'm very excited to talk about this. It's a huge game, as you said. Like it's it's a huge game, full of so much. When you first heard about the project, like first of all, how did you first hear about the project? And then, what were you like? Oh my god, this is insane! Like I have so much to plan. <laughs> yeah. No, it was. Uh, so you know, after uh, we shipped Infamous First Light, which was in like I think July of 2014, we then did a really interesting thing where. Uh, we knew, okay, we want to work on something new and we want to do a new IP. So basically they just said, whoever has an idea, let's pitch it. And we did this really awesome kind of process of people in the studio pitching their ideas. And so we did a lot of prototyping and trying to figure out what made the most sense. And so we were going through this process for quite a while and worked on a few different things. And, um, and you know, I mean, like we made some really cool stuff, some really neat stuff, but nothing was like really lighting the fire of of the, the the team and then they're like so yeah we've been working on another idea that we just wanted to to pitch to you guys and they pitched ghost and it was just electric how it was it instantly the entire studio went from like well we don't quite know what we're doing to oh my gosh we get it this is amazing and and it really was incredible because within you know six weeks or something after having, hey, we're making this game, what we had already built, because it's just so instantly recognizable that, hey, you're making a an open world samurai fantasy game, or rather just a samurai game that takes place in feudal Japan. Yeah. And so, yeah, it, it definitely condensed the studio into, in a way where we immediately understood what we were doing and what we needed to do. So what that meant on the sound side is that, you know, a lot of research into okay well what is the flora and fauna like what is the biophony of japan 
so that we can start kind of planning what the natural world is going to sound like. And then uh, a lot of research into, obviously, into swordplay. Uh, we actually found uh, a Niaido school, and Niaido is Japanese swordsmanship. We found one in Bellevue where Sucker Punch is located. So uh, myself and the, our animation director went to watch a few of the classes, and it was super uh, eye-opening because... Um, first off, I learned how to properly sheathe and unsheathe a katana, which was really important. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, it was like, you know, that was one thing where I, we, we knew that we wanted this game to be grounded in reality. And, you know, which was a huge detour for us coming from Infamous that was all about these crazy otherworldly superpowers. Um, so, you know, for me early on, I, I wanted to keep the sound design as grounded as I could. And so for me... Specifically to the katana, that meant, you know, when you're watching Hollywood films or whatever and somebody pulls out a sword, it always has that metal shing. And I did not want to do that. I wanted to really respect what does a katana actually sound like when you pull it out. Yeah. And so learn the proper way to do that. I actually got to hold this like 600 year old katana, which was oh, just wow. an amazing experience. These guys kept this. And, you know, even like we say in the game, it's like the, the belief is that the soul of those who wield the katana live in the blade. And so just holding this thing that, you know, actual samurai had wielded, you know, hundreds of years ago, it was, it was super, super powerful. But yeah, so, you know, learn that technique from them. And then also just watching, and, you know, they're teaching students. So watching kind of the range of, of people and the way that they wield the katana and the way it sounded was amazing because you could definitely tell the people who were new and just, just starting and you were getting the whooshes as they were swinging the katana through, whereas the masters, when they were demonstrating, you just didn't hear the katana as they swung it. So that was obviously a place where we knew we were going to take liberties because uh, silent katanas that swing through the air in a video game just don't really cut it. Nice pun there. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, we were also very fortunate, you know, being part of Sony, um, and uh, so we had a lot of great resources internally within Sony, and then we also worked with a lot of external kind of cultural and creative partners to make sure that we were doing stuff correctly. Um, so, yeah, it was really just a matter of tons of research, and, you know, I bought lots of props that, that would make sense from... Waraji, which are the, the you know traditional Japanese footwear, to bamboo poles and uh, sake barrels, all kinds of things that we ended up using for a lot of different props and sound design in the game. That's awesome. Yeah, because one of the first things I wanted to touch on was the authenticity and realism and also trying to toe that line, like you say, where you can take liberties and where you're like, no, we can't really take liberties on this. It must have been super tricky. Yeah, it really was. And, you know, I have to credit, you know, other people on the team for, for pushing me as well, from our creative directors to other sound designers. Because I was, it took me quite a while to finally kind of understand the level of creativity that I was comfortable with, I guess, uh, as opposed to just, nope, we got to keep this grounded. Yeah. And um, so I was, I think I was going for too much of an authentic approach early on and so you know finally i was able to realize like no it doesn't need to be authentic it needs to be perceptually authentic which is means you know it doesn't have to be like hey we're recording snow footsteps so we gotta go get footsteps in the snow it's like no it just needs to sound like 
you're, you're walking in the snow. Um, and, and the same thing applied with everything from Foley to combat. Yeah, and it's trouble. Uh, sorry, it's tricky when you're trying to toe the line between expectation and realism as well. And one of the things I always say is like, it's not realism we're always going for, it's believability. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And so when you're trying to be believably authentic at the same time, it must just be like another kind of facet to add where you're just kind of like, right, okay, we've got to keep that in mind. We've got to keep this in mind. We've got to keep that in mind while we're trying to be creative and explore where we're going with this. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, it was it was a combination of of self-checking ourselves and, you know, doing kind of peer reviews and also just following up with our, our cultural partners, both at Sony and externally to be like, I, I mean, some of this is aesthetic, so, uh, you know, that's fine. But are we are we going in the right direction here? Does this feel out of place or wrong? Um, and so, yeah, it was it was a continual, uh, you know, kind of evolution i guess and not just for sound but really for the entire project yeah i can imagine so touching on realism there i wanted to ask you about the foley side of ghost of tsushima that must have been another massive feat in itself with the sheer amount of outfits and everything else going on yeah it was and and you know actually like most of the sound design in the game is it it wasn't something of like okay this milestone we're going to work on fully great we're done it was something that kind of started early and developed and evolved and changed and iterated throughout much of the project so we started really early in that kind of early kind of figuring thing out phase of like okay well what what was samurai armor made of what was mongol armor made of and so you know we did some preliminary tests of okay well part of the reason why the mongols were so successful is they used boiled leather armor and boiled leather was so hard that it could actually deflect uh, arrows and swords and stuff like that so uh, okay well let's let's see what that sounds like so I actually ordered some leather panels and read online about how to make boiled leather and actually the interesting thing is you don't boil leather to make boiled leather armor you you cook it at 180 degrees and and that actually kind of tempers the leather and hardens it once you let it dry and so like I, you know, cut out all these panels and made like, like, you know, these rectangular panels ended up being about, you know, a, a meter square of, of these boiled leather panels. Um, and, you know, it was just a matter of like collecting pieces that seemed to be representative of the various clothing. And so we started with that and just kind of playing around. Well, how do these things sound? Ah, oh, we're missing some weight. So let's, you know, bring some other elements in. And then as the characters kind of visually developed, we started to see, you know, more and more um, content. So whether it's like, oh, these these Mongols or this character has fur and like the warrior monks, they have uh, like balls of rice kind of in a, almost a bandolier because they would like go on these long trips. And rather than, you know, having to since they, they were vegetarians and they didn't want to bother people, they would just eat you know their balls of rice on their journeys and that was part of of you know their outfits and beads and bells and all kinds of stuff so it's like okay this is getting immense how are we going to kind of make this work for all these different characters so we ended up doing a really big and really awesome foley session uh at warner brothers in la and you know we basically had all of our main characters as well as uh the mongols and i don't think we did the peds there 
But we basically, what we ended up doing is we recorded a lot of different stuff. We started with characters and then we, we kind of deconstructed those characters and just did layers of their foley. So we ended up with this great library of all these different things. And, and then we kind of coupled that plus everything that we had and we're still recording internally into this massive Reaper session. And so we basically had tracks of all these different materials and then we kind of had that broken out to all of our different Foley moves. So we were able to kind of pretty quickly make new characters by taking all of the different assets uh, and props that both uh, Warner Brothers and ourselves had recorded and then just kind of mixing the ones that were appropriate for each character and then, you know, just hitting a couple buttons in Reaper and it would spit out every variation for every type of Foley. But, uh, but yeah, it was definitely, you know, it's, it's really fun looking at, at these characters because, you know, each one kind of has a, a unique thing. You're like, oh, shoot, how are we going to do that? Oh, we don't have that asset yet. Well, let's go record something that'll fit for that. So, yeah, lots, lots of detail and a lot of fun there. Yeah, nice. I can imagine how huge that Reaper session was as well. <laughs> yeah, it'll, it'll crash my machine now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So in terms of the implementation of the Foley, then you must have had a systemic approach. There's, you can't have tailor made every movement for every animation, surely, and locomotion. You must have had something kind of dealing yep. with that. I assume you had Scream involved. We actually use Wise. Oh, OK. Yeah. And so, so, you know, it's funny because part of our Foley system is an extension of the Foley system that I came up with for um, a Spider-Man game I worked on 15 years ago that also used Wise. But I'd say the most kind of innovative thing that we did on Ghost for Foley that really helped make it possible is we essentially did all of our footsteps and locomotion Foley was all done procedurally. And the way that was handled is our animation team puts foot locking keys into their animations. And, and what that does is it essentially locks the feet to the terrain. So that way, you know, when, when the foot goes down, it's not floating, it's actually on the terrain. So we kind of co-opted those footlock keys and the animators had to put those in every animation anyway. So we just kind of, uh, you know, glommed onto that. And so whenever there was a footlock key, we could say, hey, is this light, medium and heavy? which, you know, would essentially uh, equate to like a walk, jog and run. Right. Okay. And that would play that would play the footstep on whichever foot and it would play the foley on the hips of the character for, hey, I'm walking, jogging or running. And then it would also play the visual effects on the feet. Um, so we both us and the visual effects team were able to offload, you know, so much of our work to the animation team and just have that all done procedurally as part of their workload. So that was a humongous savings for us. And then we just have each character has kind of a, a table of, okay, when, when we say play a footstep, this is your event. And when we say play a footstep jog, this is, this is your footstep wise event. And for your, your clothing walk and clothing jog and run and all that. And, and even our, like, our clothing is made of two separate layers. We have like the cloth layer and the gear layer. Um, and those are just to help you know, provide a little bit more additional variety in, in all the variations. Yeah, that makes sense. And so just to clarify, then you were saying that you kind of locked into these uh, first step keys from the animation side. And so the cloth foley and everything else, even though it was played from the hip, was it generated from those same footsteps? It was, yes. And, and that is, to be clear, that's just the locomotion stuff. So of course, for, yeah. for, for stuff like, like combat or, hey, a dude is 
idling and stretching or, or something like that, then actually our, our sound implementers did go through all those animations and tag, you know, Foley and foot scuffs and things that weren't being handled by the procedural system. Yeah, of course, that makes complete sense. So in terms of other aspects, like the, I wanted to ask about on the sound design side, the the wind especially to start with. Hmm. So of course you have this kind of wind guidance feature that's played through the controller itself, um, which is fascinating. And it's really cool to see how it works because obviously you visually see the wind guiding you. But did you take any extra steps with that kind of sound design for the wind? First of all, to kind of prevent it from being repetitive, because obviously you use it a lot yep. to guide yourself. But also, did you give it any sort of, I don't know how to explain what I mean, but guidance kind of feel? Yeah, so it, that's a great question. And, and that's exactly what we did. Um, because part of the, the plan when, when we came up with the guiding wind we already knew that wind was going to be a huge part of the game. You know, like in, in everything that we've talked about almost, uh, you know, part of it is that we talk about our inspiration from Japanese cinema. And, you know, part of the thing there is just every scene, everything is always moving. It's like the wind is always intense in those movies. And we wanted to do something similar in the game. Yeah. So we knew, okay, there's going to have to be a lot of just ambient wind in the world. And then when we came up with this guiding wind navigation system, I mean, at first I was like, oh, no, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> like, like wind is just noise. And now we have noise on top of noise. How are we going to do this? And so there's, there's two things there. For the, the ambient wind, the direction that I gave uh, the sound designer was don't think about, don't design this as if it's like wind, like noise. Think about it as if you're designing the sound of the that specific environment being affected by the wind right so i don't want to hear like noise i want to hear the sound of the trees moving that kind of stuff uh and he did such a great job it worked out great for the guiding wind we had this additional kind of narrative aspect to it in that when the player kind of first experiences the guiding wind you know Jin is essentially talking to the spirit of his father through his sword saying like I need to save my uncle. How the hell am I going to do this? And all of a sudden this wind just kind of blows through the scene and leads you along your path. Yeah. And so, so what we wanted to do to both kind of imbue that sense of, oh, this is, this is maybe it's Jin's father's spirit. Maybe not, but maybe. And also make it sound unique from the kind of the ambient weather wind is uh, we added some tonal elements to it. And, and so, and basically what that was is, um, Josh Lord and I, uh, Josh, my senior sound designer, we just went into the Foley room and he recorded me just blowing into all these different flutes we have really poorly. And, and so, you know, just getting that kind of weird, like tonal eerie kind of quality. And so we just did a whole bunch of recordings of that stuff. And so then he took that and mixed all that with some other like breaths and and kind of just interesting vocal elements nice and and that's really i think once he put that in and it was like oh yes this is it like you can hear and tell that is the windicator and it still sounds wind like but that tonal element makes it sound fully unique as well windicator i love that as Oops, well. <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's, that's our internal name for it and i always forget that 
externally we call it guiding wind, but yeah, windicator. It just that's what it is. It's it's it's, it's perfect. It's the indicator. Uh, I love a good word combo as well. You can't be <laughs> yeah. a good word combo. It's true. Um, now you touched on this again as well. Like, um, but I wanted to also ask about the environments um, because obviously it's a vast open world um, area, beautiful environments and beautiful sounding environments as well. Again, an immense task and apart from looking at all the creatures that would be around in that certain time and in that area, that must have been a quite a huge task in itself, just coming up with this list of, right, okay, it's 1274. Uh, what creatures were even alive back then and what was around? <laughs> well, and, you know, yeah, I mean, that's exactly it. Like, we, we definitely took liberties. And, you know, Tsushima is its own very special place. It's isolated. You know, it's right between Korea and Japan. Um, and we knew that, I mean, just like we did visually in the game, like, like the real Tsushima is just this beautiful forested mountainous area. Mm. And what we, we wanted to do is obviously make it a lot more visually interesting, um, for players. So, you know, our Tsushima is almost more of like a microcosm of all of Japan. You know, right. there's, you know, hot springs and marshlands and snowy mountains. And, you know, there's all these things that just don't exist on the real Tsushima. And so we, we did very much the same thing on the audio side, where rather than saying, okay, what exists on Tsushima, we looked at, okay, what exists in Japan? That's all going to be fair game for us. If, it, if there is a, a species that is in Japan, we can do that. And then there was also looking at kind of historical records. And okay, like uh, in the ambience, you'll sometimes hear wolves howl. And there are no wolves on Tsushima, but there is evidence that showed that there were gray wolves in Japan, you know, several hundred years ago, and that they were just, you know, poached away. So, so we we definitely kind of took those liberties where it's like, yeah, this actually makes sense. It looks like this might have been the case in in the 13th century, and you know, we did a lot of recording. This was another area where you know, being part of Sony really worked to our advantage. Um, you know, obviously Sony has studios in Japan, so we reached out to them uh, and to the Japan studio and, uh, you know, as we were working on the game, so the game takes place in this kind of October, November time frame, and so we really needed to record in that time frame because, you know, if you record in the summer in Japan, you're going to get all these cicadas. Yeah. Like, and cicadas are just deafening, and our game takes place in the fall. We can't have those cicadas because that's a summer thing. So... So it worked out perfectly for us where we asked them to go record for us in the exact time frame that we needed. And so they went to several different places, actually including to a bird sanctuary, and recorded all sorts of great stuff for us. And then I was able to go in late December, early uh, January and record some more. And that was doubly advantageous because I, I basically had 10 days. And so I, I, I planned my whole trip based on the species I wanted to record. So I was like, okay, I land in Tokyo this day. The next day I'm going to fly to Hokkaido so I can record the red crowned cranes. Then I'm going to go to this lake and record the whooper swans. And then I'm going to go down here. And, you know, it was, it was all based on what I was going to record. And the other thing that I felt was I could use there is by then recording in the winter months is, you know, we have the, the northern part of the island, Kamiagata, you know, I can use more of, of what I've recorded up there to also help give that its unique sonic identity. Amazing. And it's incredible you got to go to all those places as well and actually do those recordings. Ah, uh, it was it was absolutely incredible. And, you know, it I, I felt like not only was it just an amazing experience, but it was also 
super useful for me as a sound designer and and director to actually like be in those spaces and and just listen you know i mean yeah. it's like you know listening to the recordings i got back from japan studio was fantastic but to actually be in the space physically and to hear kind of the cadence of the birds and how far away they are from you and and the reflections and all that stuff it was it was absolutely invaluable for kind of understanding what the game should sound like yeah and in a way i mean this is in my perspective in general but like when you do these sort of recording trips and recording sessions it's also almost like forced meditation because <laughs> you have to just sit there and listen and you have to be quiet and you, oh, yeah. you do listen obviously you critically listen but then you just kind of absorb the moment yeah absolutely and you know it's great like so I, my, my partner came with me and that was really fun because she was like, okay, I'll be your documentarian and, and we've been together long enough that she knows when I'm recording, you got to be quiet. Yeah. Um, and, and we had this amazing experience where we hiked up the side of a mountain uh, and set up the microphones and we're just standing there shivering because it's snowy <laughs> and cold and, you know, just like there's birds and it sounds great and we're just both quiet and then all of a sudden there's just this insane piercing shrill alarm sound that we hear that just then echoes through the valley and we both look at each other and mouth what the and and we're both completely silent and it just goes again and one more time and then we see these two sika deer just gallop through the meadow like right below us and then for the next 10 minutes, they just continued to yell and call to each other. Like, that's their alert call. Oh, wow. And it was just incredible. Like, the, just that experience of, like, I can't believe this happened. And then to be able to take that and throw it into the game was even better. Um, but, but, yeah, I mean, just those, those moments of you are just in nature and it is just doing its thing completely unaware of you you're right it's just such this beautiful zen experience i mean it's one of the things i love so much about field recording definitely it's incredible and again i'm going to ask a very similar question that i did with the foley um with this sort of vast environment and the amount of ambient creatures that are around you again you must have had some sort of systemic solution to handle because you have time of day going on as well as mm -hmm. like wind and weather and things so your environment system must have also had to deal with quite a lot. Yeah, I I'm I think that our environment system is probably the biggest kind of new feature that we added for mm -hmm. for sound system specific, um, and I I'm really happy with with what it is. I think it's it's super awesome. It's it's super powerful and also really easy. And so I mean we could probably talk about this for an hour, but but to try to distill <laughs> exactly what it is is so we, we have these kind of environmental areas and they're divided into like a major and a minor. So like forest bamboo, forest coniferous, forest deciduous. Those are like major and minor kind of things. And, um, and then we have, we use an expression system that basically uses kind of mathematical expressions to set the boundaries throughout the world of what does forest bamboo mean? What does forest deciduous mean? What does you know, water lake mean? What does countryside grassland mean? And the benefit of that is, you know, the environment team is constantly rebuilding the world and regrowing vegetation. But because everything is expression based, every time that anything gets regrown, the environment automatically changes to what it should be on the audio side. And then once we kind of have these like major minor pairs, most of, of our work is actually done in an Excel spreadsheet. 
And in that spreadsheet, we're basically saying, okay, for, um, for the forest, here's all of our kind of valid, let's say, we'll start with birds. I mean, we can have birds and mammals and wind creeks and, and you know, whatever kind of categories of ambient sounds we want. Mm. And so for birds, we'll list all the different birds. And we can also have different categories of birds. The way that we controlled things like time of day, um, rather than doing this all in Ys, is we just used curves to define kind of the frequency with which things should sound. And, and the benefit of that is uh, a few things. One, we were just able to have these one shots get called when it was time for, for a bird to play a chirp rather than you know just be kind of hogging up all our events in Ys with loops that would just play birds occasionally. Yeah. And then the other thing is, you know, so we created things like nocturnal and diurnal uh, curves so we could actually uh, match the behavior of the animals exactly to how various animals behave. So, you know, we have certain birds that get, you know, more, uh, more active at dusk and dawn and other ones that are just active in the afternoon and, you know, amphibians on both sides of that. So it allowed us to craft a more kind of accurate soundscape. And then we were also able to affect, well, how often are things going to play if it gets really windy or really rainy? So we could kind of affect kind of what happens based on weather as well as time of day. And, you know, we could affect, um, you know, how far away average things are going to be from the listener. Because it's just going to be basically every time saying, okay, I can play something, then it's going to randomly play something in 3D space around the listener. And we give it kind of constraints like how far away from the listener uh, we can also affect the Z height, which is is really nice for 3D audio. Very cool. So yeah, it's it, it's super cool, and it's just like really easy to kind of modify and and also to know that great, my behaviors are actually correct for all the different species. It's just like oh okay, great, I've got, I found a new frog that I can put into this. What when is he usually active? Great, I'm gonna put him in the the frog daytime category, and then <laughs> I want him to play in the wetlands and. Uh, at the creek side and and you know that just automatically propagates throughout the whole world that is awesome and i'm going to get super nerdy for a second now as well and go even deeper so the curves you were talking about just to clarify are they still rtpcs in wise or are they a different thing or they're they're actually so we did we did have time of day as an rtpc in wise which we we use for some other stuff but um but no actually they are just like in in code they are just you know I mean, in, in code, it's not a curve. So I actually, you know, made a pretty curve in Excel so I can see what it looked like. But it's just like a table <laughs> of, like an XY table of, of, hey, this is the value of X at Y. And and that, you know, in the magic of code world, it, it looks that up for every sound of like, okay, hey, I want to play a sound. Let me look at at these curves to help determine what sound to play and how often I can play it and, and so on. So yeah, it was strictly a curve, uh, a, a code-based uh, solution, but then we, we, we did have, I mean, you know, we, we had most of that stuff actually still exposed and we used a lot of in, in wise as well, of course. I mean, actually we did have, yeah, we had all three of the, like the main three curves that we used were time of day, wind and rain. And we had all of those exposed and used a ton of in wise. Yeah, I can imagine. So you you, intro, you know you called upon the arcane wizards, aka audio programmers, to assist. <laughs> I can imagine yes. quite a bit. Yeah. Well, yeah, and I mean, again, like uh, the whole 
reason for doing that is we knew very early on that we are a small team, especially at the beginning of, of the project. I mean, at the very beginning of the project, you know, it was, uh, it was myself and one other sound designer and for, you know, probably the first year or so. So it was, it was a really tiny team. And so we knew, look, we have to build out these systems early and we need to be thinking, we're not like, this world was probably, I think, 14 times larger than Second Sun, and we were not going to be growing our team 14 times. <laughs> so we needed to, to figure out, okay, how are we going to do things more effectively and do things smarter, and how can we make tools do most of the heavy lifting for us? So that was a, a kind of early on decision, and, and that's, I think, in part why that the audio, uh, the ambient sound manager is what we call it, and I think the reason that that worked so well is because we conceived it very early and you know we had a little bit of iteration to figure out like you know how can we make this as intuitive for the sound designers and um but you know after not too long it was just like great it magically works and then adding new content is just so easy and you know we can just do all the bells and whistles with with a few little mouse clicks Awesome. And that's what these systems are for, really, isn't it? Just to make our lives mm -hmm. easier. So you're like, okay, let's design a system that does the job for me pretty much. And then I can just put my sound design in there. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So speaking, we spoke about the ambient animals, but I'm also um, thinking of things like the horses and the deer that run around. Was it very similar to your Foley system for those as well? Um, yeah, it was in that the same thing applied with the foot locking. So, so, you know, truthfully, we didn't have near as much to do with the animals. I mean, the horse, you know, the horse definitely, they had the saddles and the bridles. So, you know, they actually had kind of this additional layer of, of, you know, clothing essentially, um, that got incorporated, but, you know, animals like, like deer and the oxen and the bears and the boars, I mean, those were primarily just footsteps. They all had like some uh unique sounds like i mean you probably never hear them in game because you never get close enough but like the bears will do these really cute animations where they actually like dig up at roots and you know stretch and yawn and um i guess the oxen you can get a little bit closer to and watch them you know shake their head and graze and and you know groom themselves and stuff but but we actually did do uh you know sounds for all those things um and those were done similar to the other characters it's like oh Ox is licking himself. Let me drop an animation event there and play the ox lick sound there. But yeah, it was definitely much simpler than than most of the characters. Nice. Now I'm just thinking back to when you first heard about the wind and your initial response is like, oh God, how are we going to do that? And uh, there's a couple of other things that made me think of those moments that we have as well. One of them being the filter option um, for having it like an old school uh, Japanese movie. Mm. Um, when that feature was kind of introduced, you must have been like, oh, okay. Right, what are we going to do for this then? <laughs> you know, it's it's funny. I, I That was probably my very initial assessment. I was like, oh gosh, okay, well, I'm going to have to like put an EQ and a distortion and how many effects am I going to have to put on the master bus to make this work? And then, so we got super lucky because um, I knew that one of the audio programmers at the CSG group in in London at Sony, uh, this guy Nick Ward Foxton, was actually building an amazing suite of plugins that they used for Blood and Truth, um, and so he basically he built essentially like a, like a clone of of McDSP Futzbox. Oh, nice. So 
uh, and he was he's just he's a great chap and uh, you know he just gave us the plugins and and uh, so as soon as I heard about about that I was like oh my gosh we could just use like a futz box thing and we could dial this in and make it perfect and that was exactly it you know I don't I don't think that the idea of actually affecting the audio with the Kurosawa filter came from us actually because I I really wanted to do that I I figured if we're doing a visual thing, of course we should do an audio thing. Yeah, definitely. The the challenge from there became like how to make it sound affected without sounding like crap. Yeah. And you know, the my initial test with it was like, oh yeah, that sounds like a fifties movie, all right. That sounds horrible. <laughs> that sounds pretty awful. There's no <laughs> no way I could play the game listening to this. So we really like dialed it back and it was, you know, it was definitely this like um you know, kind of balancing act of like, how do we make it sound affected, but not, you know, over the top. And, and the really cool thing is like when we were doing the final mix and we were kind of tuning the, the Kurosawa mode effect, you know, there was a lot of, uh, there was, there was some discussion from, you know, some people were like, Oh, I don't like it. So we were like, okay, well let's, let's hear them out. And let's just try playing Kurosawa mode without any effect on. And it was just like, this, it feels wrong. It just doesn't, doesn't work and so um so yeah I, I felt like you know once we put it back on and it was like yep i mean this is what it has to be it, it definitely justified the work that we did because you know i i appreciate that it's it's subtle enough to not be intrusive but it still kind of adds to that that visual effect that you get yeah i mean it's a necessity and i would have been the same as you even if they offered and they were like look we can just not do anything with the sound on it if you like you'd be like ah oh, no 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 we we, we kind of have to because it would you know yeah exactly <laughs> and the other one um was the abilities um one one as such especially being increased hearing that must have been another feature when they're like okay so we're gonna have this feature and you're like right okay right okay another thing where we're gonna have to kind of make sure this isn't too bad and also like actually does give the player the right information but without sounding weird um and you know was it just a combination of filters and bringing up the footsteps or was it a bit more than that yeah that's that's another great question i mean so yeah when when they propose like you know hey we need to have you know a mode where 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 Jin concentrates and he can hear better and that's what it's going to be it's it's going to be like enhanced hearing yeah i got super excited because i was like awesome you guys are using sound as like a core game mechanic that's great and then it became a matter of like okay how can we do this and and what we ended up doing was it is largely just kind of mixed state stuff and so we have a few different kind of levels of of the mix um based on how long you've been in focus mode and yeah. if you're you're moving or not or in enhanced hearing so yeah it, it is primarily okay well what are the important things why are you going into enhanced hearing it's it's really to hear enemies so you know it's just a matter of filtering out most of the other stuff and then bumping up their stuff we also did do an rtpc on the the kind of uh the listener emitter the the uh, listener cone so that way as things got within your field of view it also became louder and I think that's something that I definitely want to experiment with more in the future is yeah. kind of starting to play around with the soundscape and and kind of really affecting like well what's in like the the azimuth of the camera what is what can we do outside of that and we actually we, we did end up doing a lot of that you know that's also a way that we kind of cleaned up our our combat mix was like taking stuff that is like outside of, of the, the camera view and just mixing it way further down so that 
you know, you can be aware that people are fighting behind you, but it's nowhere near as, as important as the people that you're actually engaging with, like directly in front. Yeah, the people that are actually about to stab you. And kind of one of the last things I wanted to touch on in terms of sound design was I'm always curious how people decide how little, how much, and how they're going to use the controller speaker. Yeah, that's that's a great question. And, you know, so my my take on the controller speaker is, you know, for me, I've always treated it like like it's another LFE, right? It's just another effects channel. Yeah. And and so to me, for it to be effective, it needs to be used somewhat sparingly and in places where it really makes the most sense. And so, you know, on Second Son, we used it to great effect in a few really cool novel ways. You know, obviously the, the famous one is, is the, the uh, spray can. When you shake the controller, you hear the ball in the controller. But then also, like, when you, when you uh, absorbed powers, the sound of the power would always start at the power source and then kind of morph into the, the controller speaker. So it was like, oh, I am absorbing this. And that worked really well. That's cool. I like that. Yeah, that, that turned out really well. And so when we started on Ghost, it's like, shoot, like, how are we going to do some very targeted, very key things that would still have that same kind of impact. And so, as you kind of mentioned before, one of the obvious ones is when you do the call wind for the guiding wind, you know, we, we play that burst through the controller speaker. And that, you know, really just kind of grounds that to the player of, okay, I know I've called the wind and here it goes. Um, you know, that's one area where I wish that the speaker wasn't mono and that we could actually do some panning because, you know, like, the rest of it, it actually, you know, it moves in the direction of where you need to go. So to actually have that happen at your head would be great. But so that was one. And then another one that we did is so there's kind of like a, a flashbang type grenade that the Mongols have. So again, you know, we actually kind of have a, a tonal thing come out of the controller speaker, which is really interesting when you're playing. If you're playing with the controller speaker, you don't realize, and I think it's because, you know, that tone is just at that, like, perfect sweet spot of, like, you know, uh, whatever the frequency is, where it actually sounds like it's coming from all around you. It is not apparent that it is coming from the controller speaker. So you don't even know that that's, it feels like it's in the full mix in, in the room. Um, and that, again, it's like, you know, what are the sounds that the player should be experiencing very immediately? You know, I... We played around with like, oh, what if we have like the arrow tracers going through there or the sword clashes and none of that really kind of felt effective. It was like, well, okay, the sound is coming out through there, but I'm not getting any kind of reaction to it. It's not apparent that it's coming out of there yeah. versus those two were like, oh, yeah, the, the game is actually better by having these come out through the controller speaker. Awesome. And the next thing I wanted to talk about as well was the, the sheer amount of dialogue there must have been to schedule and record and cast and and everything yeah so what was the process like for casting and then recording and then of course you had to do it for multiple languages yeah it was it was definitely by far the most challenging uh project we've ever done in that regards for for multiple reasons i mean so you know from the very beginning uh you know one of our initial stakes was like we are doing an all asian cast like it is it is critical to this game that we are authentic in every way we can be. Yeah. And there's no way that we are going to do that if we have a bunch of non-Asian characters playing our main Asian cast. So so that was critical. Um, the Mongols was a challenge. We actually, you know, we 
looked into could we go record in Mongolia or Kazakhstan or somewhere where there's lots of talent that speaks Mongolian. And what we ended up doing uh, with, the Mon with the Mongols is we actually uh, did find and hire a, uh, a Mongolian uh, actor and an acting coach. And he, he worked with all of, some of our, our actors who played Mongols had actually played Mongols before in other, uh, in other shows. And so they'd had experience with the language. But, but what uh, the, the director's name is Sambariah did is he took every single line at the beginning to get them comfortable. He took every single line and uh, basically recorded it himself and broke it up like syllable by syllable because Mongolian is a really challenging language. And so he'd start with each syllable and then say it faster and faster until he brought it all together and basically gave that to the actors before their sessions so that they could like listen and practice and understand. And then by the end, he was always at the recording sessions to help them with pronunciations, but you know, it definitely started to go a lot faster. And even on, on the kind of our, our normal English cast, we also had a dialect coach because you know, we didn't want our actors to like do these over the top Japanese accents. Of course, yeah. We used what Daisuke, who plays Jin, kind of we used him as as the like the touchstone of like, look, this is this is about as far as we want to go. And some characters might be a little little more or less, but like we don't want to go too far outside of this range. And so we had a dialect coach that kind of helped each actor kind of not only develop but then maintain what their accent was. And then, of course, you know, this was the first game that we've ever done. And, and again, this was a decision we made really early on because we knew we had to do this was we had to ship this game with English and Japanese on every every platform. Like this game has to be playable in Japanese. Um, so just the coordination of all of that, plus all the other languages and the fact that COVID started. Oh, man. It yeah. was just absolutely insane. Um, you know, I mean, obviously we'd recorded tons before COVID, but you know, COVID started, I mean, lockdown started in March and we were still recording plenty of the, of the game. I mean, we'd still had, you know, about four months, well, three months that we were trying to record. Um, but you know, with every different region going through lockdown, uh, it was, it was such a challenge and, you know, just such amazing work by our dialogue team. And of course our localization team. I mean, it's beyond a minor miracle that they pulled this all off. It was just absolutely just incredible coordination between everyone. Yeah, something like that takes a lot of precise planning, I can imagine. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, I mean, fortunately, we have a couple producers that kind of run that side of it. You know, I'm I'm more just the one saying like, the projection isn't right on that. Can we fix it? Do we have another alt take on that? But uh but yeah, the production on that, I'm grateful that that is not my job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so with the music side, I want to go on to next. So the music side, how was it working with Ilan Eshkari and Shigeru Umebayashi? I hope I'm saying that right. Yeah. Um, uh, on the soundtrack, because that must have been an incredible opportunity as well with, with using the authentic instruments mm -hmm. and getting the kind of uh, Japanese soundtrack together. Yeah, that, that was, it was another fantastic experience. And it was also another thing that it, it took us quite a while to get to using uh, Ilan and Ume. And, and uh, Shigeru Umebayashi goes by the name Ume because I guess it's just shorter to say. And um, they're both just 
I mean, great people, super talented composers. And, and so it's interesting because as we were searching for a composer for the game, we knew we, we needed and wanted somebody, ideally somebody Japanese, but somebody with knowledge and experience with traditional Japanese instrumentation. And this was a really emotional uh, story. So we also really needed heavy uh, thematic melodies and just, you know, something that could match the emotional arc of the story. And so uh, it was funny because throughout like our early prototypes, we were constantly, you know, using scratch music to kind of help convey the emotion. And we were always pulling from Ume scores and from Milan scores. And so it finally got to the point where we were like, why don't we just see if we can hire them? <laughs> and, and what was funny is they'd actually even worked before together. And we didn't even, like, that was not a consideration. But it was like, oh, well, obviously they know each other. So that might make things even better. But, you know, each one brought something unique to the score. And I also have to say, you know, it was awesome the amount that, you know, I mean, Ilan has actually worked on on um, other uh, films that have you know taken place in in Japan and stuff, and so he had knowledge. He he'd recorded some stuff before, but the the kind of passion with which he he dove headlong into learning and and finding players and and you know writing in traditional scales was awesome. And you know it was just the work that both of them did. I think. The testament to how well it worked is that you cannot listen to our score, I feel, and pick out, oh, that's Alon's piece, that's Ume's piece. And there's a lot where we're kind of munging them together through edits, and it just all works seamlessly. And so that is, to me, the testament of, of just how well they work together. And just the, the score is, yeah, it's just so powerful. It's definitely the favorite score of mine on any game that I've ever ever worked on. I mean, it is really just so emotionally evocative and and so iconic i mean the, the melodies are just all just fantastic yeah it's so emotionally rich mm. and just beautiful mm -hmm. um we've actually had elon on the show before as well nice. so if anyone wants to check that out you can check it on our previous episodes so we've discussed the sound design the dialogue the music i have the kind of big question to summarize it if you will the mix of the game okay that that is so good but it must have been so much work to go through every single bit and go, okay, maybe touch that up a little bit. Maybe, oh, maybe it's a bit priority, change that, you know, like. <laughs> so the other thing about the mix is, so the mix happened in, uh, I can't remember if we started in May or if we started in June. Um, I think we started in, no, maybe we started in late April. April, yeah, we started in April. Uh, so again, this is COVID, and the the plan originally, as it always is for for a final mix on on a Sony game, is great. Uh, you know, I'll go down there and maybe I'll bring somebody from my team, and then you know the sound design managers from the Sony product development team, and then my sound design lead there, and the music uh, editor and the dialogue supervisor, and you know, so you end up with you know probably eight to ten people mixing the game and it's really great because it's a super collaborative back and forth yeah sure and and so you know as you know once once the lockdown started here in march it was like okay how are we going to do this um okay well we'll we'll just we'll, we'll strip it down and we'll have you know 
five people come and then it just got worse and worse and you know yeah okay can, can i get a travel waiver to fly down there uh shoot maybe that's not gonna work anymore so what we ended up doing is so i drove down uh from seattle to uh san francisco it's about a 13 hour drive so i drove down and just holed up in a hotel right across from the campus and and the mix was essentially uh, myself, and then we had Adam Lidbetter, who was the supervising sound designer on the Sony side, um, and Kyle Richards, who was the dialogue supervisor, would come in sometimes, and then Nick Mastroianni, who's one of the music editors, was in a, a separate room. So we were basically in Studio A, which is, you know, their biggest mixing room, yeah. and I was, like, in the sweet spot, controlling wise and playing the game, and Adam was in, like, the back row, like, 10 feet behind me, and then if Kyle was there, he'd be, like, on the other side of the room, and then Nick was playing the game in the the live room, so in a totally different room, and, you know, that was how we mixed, and the fact that it turned out as well as it did is crazy, um, but I think we did a few things that made it uh, work really well, and that is that we kind of, you know, told everybody who normally would have been there participating in the mix, hey, this is, this is what we're planning on working on, you know, this is kind of our schedule for the week. And so we had everybody kind of try to jump ahead of us so that they could be playing stuff after that. So then we could basically take their notes and incorporate that into our own mix notes. And so what the plan ended up, I mean, it, it worked fantastically. And what the plan ended up being is, you know, we first started with, okay, let's kind of dial in all the core systems. So the combat, Foley, um, UI, um, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then we started working on, on the Golden Path missions. And we went through all of them. And then we did all of our, uh, the legendary or mythic uh, item missions. Uh, and then we did those. Because, I mean, the focus was we... We started with uh, four weeks. We had four weeks of the mix. It was not enough. So we were like, look, we just need to get through what we can get through. And what we need to focus on is what's most important. What are most players going to hear? So we did all the core stuff. Then we did all the golden path. Then we did all the, the mythic item missions. And I think around that time, they announced that we had to, to slip uh, our ship date. So that gave us an extra week. So now we had five weeks. And um, from there, we did all of the Buddy Chain Silver Path missions. And that was kind of what I hoped we were going to get through in our initial mix. Yeah. Uh, if, if we could have gotten through all that, I would have been happy. So we got through all that, and then we, we had this extra time now. So we were able to replay through kind of the first, like, three hours of the game. And then we were able to get through almost all of the Silver Path, you know, additional missions. And there's, like, a hundred... There's about a hundred of them in the game, and I think we got through like ninety six of them. Oh wow, nice. So yeah, I mean it was it was it was absolutely crazy. I mean you know it was just wake up, walk across the street, mix, go back to the hotel, wake up, go across the street, mix <laughs> for five weeks. But just in a mixing coma, basically. Yeah, I mean, there was nothing else to do. It was it was lockdown. So um, so in a lot of ways, I think uh, it it ended up working really well. And yeah, I mean, I I couldn't be happier with how the mix turned out. And you know, it was so unconventional. I actually like shot a bunch of video of it, and so I have this pretty boring, probably twenty five minute 
you know, thing of, of what mixing in a pandemic looks like that I'll, I'll hopefully get to post someday. But it was, uh, it was exceptionally unconventional, but, um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty awesome how, how, how well it worked out and just kind of all the, the stuff that we were able to achieve in such weird circumstances. Yeah. Well, I mean, unconventional as it was, it, it, it worked. So you managed to get the mix to where you wanted it to be. Yeah. And everyone is also very impressed with it. Well, thank you. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was very fortunate. And again, like, you know, it, it would not have been possible without the entire team because every step of the way, you know, this has been such a, a collaborative experience from every single person, not just on the audio team either, but even within all of Sucker Punch. I mean, that's something I have always loved about Sucker Punch is, you know, I, I will have, you know, people on the environment team or the missions team or a programmer, whomever come to me with, you know, audio feedback or just an interesting idea to try. And, you know, quite often that stuff is super valid and it usually ends up working its way into the game because there's a lot of really cool ideas coming from other people that we might not have thought of. So, so yeah, it's, it's absolutely, you know, the hard work of, of everybody at, at Sucker Punch and Sony that, that really made it happen. Of course. And as audio people in general, we, we kind of tend to speak to the most departments almost, mm -hmm. I think, because we're always like, oh, hey, don't forget us. And what are you doing there? And how can we help with that? OK, cool. Nice one. Don't forget who we are. Like <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, no, exactly. And, you know, we, we definitely try to try to uh, put a lot of pressure on that point at Sucker Punch, but make it fun. Um, throughout Ghost of Tsushima, I actually had a, a bribery <laughs> racket in place called audio bucks where i would actually award a fake currency to people on the team when they would either remind us about something or report a bug or you know just keep us in uh in 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 line about new features or fix things for us um and then you know you could exchange these audio bucks for for prizes like hugs and booze <laughs> and um and it, it actually, yeah, it was it was fun. Not enough people use them. I think I only got to give out like six hugs before COVID and buy three people coffee. But it, it was just having this funny thing that people would like actually think about like, oh, I got to remember to tell audio. You know, it, that it was super effective for that. Nice. It's not a bad tactic. Gamifying the system. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> now, that was already so much. However, I have more legends oh yeah okay so when when we first heard about that like incredible free update but also must have been another challenge for the audio department it, it absolutely was and you know i mean legends was not something that you know we tacked on at the end and i think that became apparent as people played it and realized oh wow this is like this is fully fleshed out. Um, so, you know, Legends was something that, that we knew about and had been planning for, you know, throughout the whole project, essentially. Um, and, you know, in some ways, it was something we were really excited about because we knew, like, you know, the bulk of this world is so grounded. And, you know, the sound design for that is fun and challenging in its own way. But just to kind of have this, like, insane world that you can just go crazy on and just, you know, take a lot more liberties with... To have that there was also kind of this respite of like, oh yeah, like, sure, I'm just working on footsteps for these several months, but then I get to make these crazy demons. And so so it was super, uh, I think, exciting and motivating to have that there, yeah. just to kind of give us, you know, something kind of unique to work on. 
But it was also something where, again, we, we could not have done it without our, our team at Sony because it was a lot of content. And, you know, there's just so much stuff to, to work on. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it, it turned out, I think, really well. It was a ton of fun. And, you know, a lot of it was like, okay, well, we've built all these systems for Ghost. And the whole notion you know, from the beginning is that those systems need to kind of interoperate between, you know, the single player experience and legends. And so a lot of it was actually pretty easy. And, uh, you know, the, the bespoke content, like the, the final boss or whatever, you know, those were just these, these joyous little nuggets that we got to kind of, you know, figure out on their own as well. Awesome. Now, my inner audio nerd is screaming lots of more questions at me, lots more questions at me. However, I sadly only have one question left for you, uh, which can be a bit of a doozy for some people. If you could go back in time and give yourself one piece of advice, what would it be? Oh, man, just just on Ghost or like in life in general? Let's let's go in general, but career specific. Career specific. Oh, man. I mean... My career has been nothing but like luck, chance, and I'm sure a hell of a lot of of privilege. So, um, you know, that that is the only reason that I am where I am is because I have been exceptionally lucky. But I, I think that there's a lot that I could have done better throughout my career with kind of more knowledge and more patience. I think I am constantly in the state of like, gotta get it done, gotta get it done, in part because, hey, we're audio. We always have too many things to do and not enough time to do it. Yeah. But um, but at the same time, you know, taking a step back early and developing a plan can help you infinitely once you're kind of at that, like, okay, it's go time. We need, we need to deliver now. So... Uh, you know, that's something that I, I, I work on and I have worked on throughout my career and I still struggle with it. But, you know, having having an extra voice in my ear telling me that from the early days until now, uh, I think that would always be super, super helpful and useful. Yeah, definitely. I think we can all relate to that one as well. So I have to say, Brad, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did, picking your brains apart. I did. I would love to talk for another couple hours if, you know, work didn't get in the way. <laughs> Pesky work, <laughs> stopping us from talking about audio. <laughs> but yes, it's been amazing, and we hope to have you back on the show in the near future. That would be great. I would look forward to that. I look forward to it very much. Thanks again, Brad, and take care. Awesome. We'll do. Thanks, Sam. everyone this is sam thanks very much for listening to the sound architect podcast today i hope you enjoyed this episode if so there are many ways you can support the show which is incredibly appreciated obviously there's the financial way where you can support us on patreon which is patreon.com forward slash sound design uk however there are many other ways which also help such as liking subscribing reviewing commenting and sharing via whatever channel you listen on Thanks so much for your support already. It really is a work of passion for me, and I'd love to keep sharing the knowledge from all these talented and wonderful people. 
Thanks again and catch you on the next episode. In our modern lives, we spend so much time thinking about what things look like that we tend to forget about our incredible sense of hearing. That's where we come in. I'm Dallas Taylor, and I'm the host of 20,000 Hertz, a podcast that reveals the stories behind the world's most recognizable and interesting sounds. In each episode, we chase down the hidden backstory behind a famous sound or sonic phenomenon. We followed sound designer Ben Burt on his hunt for the sound effects of Star Wars. He was hiking and his backpack caught on a, a guy wire that was leading up to a radio tower. And he heard what sounded like a blaster sound. We found out that dinosaurs probably didn't sound anything like Jurassic Park. If we were around when T-Rex was around, we might feel these sounds of the largest dinosaurs more than we would hear them through our ears. We've tracked down the origins of a drum sample that's been used in hundreds of hip-hop and electronic songs. During that time, everybody had drum breaks. And we had been doing songs where Greg would play these drum beats. We've explored the challenges of interplanetary communication. It's pretty amazing to think that I could be on Mars and say, Houston, I have a problem. And it'll be 40 minutes before they get back and say, what's up? And we've revealed how the Netflix audio logo almost included the sound of a goat. For a while, we were stuck on that goat sound. I thought that would be a good time. <laughs> this year on 20,000 Hertz, we'll uncover the origins of even more iconic sounds. Our dog. Uh-huh. We'll also hear from a few surprise guests. In this run of Daffy, he's not the greedy money. Ooh, that's mine. Give that to me. We're bringing him back to the, uh, I'm Daffy. <laughs> you know, uh, we are all time travelers going one way. Subscribe to 20,000 Hertz wherever you get your podcasts. That's 20,000 Hertz spelled out without any numbers. Once you see our swirly purple icon, you'll know you're in the right place. And if you're already a fan of the show, tap the share button in your podcast player and post this trailer on Facebook or Twitter, or text it to someone directly who you think would love this show. Hi all, this is Becky and Susan from the Sound Girls Podcast, where we speak to audio professionals from all walks of life. Join us Tuesdays at 9 a.m. and listen to the amazing array of sound humans talk about how they got into the biz. And a few cool things, like roadie nicknames and fizzy water preferences. You can find the Sound Girls podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as our website, soundgirls.org. On Tonebender's Sound Design Podcast, we talk to the Mandalorian's mixer, Bonnie Wilde. If we get this wrong, people gonna be mad at us. <laughs> and the more we talk to people working in sound, the more we find out that they are just trying to figure out what works. Like Dave Whitehead, who had no idea how to make the spaceship sounds for District 9. Until he tried. A vibrator shoved into a dobro guitar. And hopefully after a while, you gain enough experience. Like 15-time Oscar nominee, Randy Tom. The most interesting stuff almost always happens when you're in the process of doing it. And you hope you get it perfect, like Steve Bodecker did on Black Panther. You can create in people's imagination something far more terrifying than they could ever see. On Tone Vendors, we talk with the incredible artists doing sound for your favorite films, TV shows, and games. They tell us how they finally figured it out. You can find us anywhere you listen to podcasts or visit ToneBendersPodcast.com. We didn't even get to take phone calls on like yeah. Joe Dorowski films, line two. <laughs>